This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agopymatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. This week's guest is Aaron Bowdy. Aaron has been studying and working in the field of behavior change for over 20 years and uses the Enneagram conscientious practices and behavior change theory to help individuals, couples, leaders, and teams in both life and at work. She has a bachelor's degree in human development, a master's of public health, and is finishing her PhD in industrial and organizational psychology with a focus on coaching and development. She has been studying and using the Enneagram for 11 years as a tool to get clear about behavioral patterns that align with individual relationship and team success. She's a certified Enneagram teacher and trainer, as well as an accredited Enneagram professional from the International Enneagram Association. Ooh. If you would like to learn more about your own Enneagram at any point while this show is happening, you can visit Aaron's website to book a session. The link is in the episode notes. Without further ado, welcome Aaron Bowdy to Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I just want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Holbrook, who's yes. like, oh my God, Maria, you have to meet Aaron Bowdy. And I was like, all right, let's, 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 let's talk about it. And I, I, I try not to talk to you more than I should, because I really <laughs> just wanted to learn and then record at the same time. So we've left our conversation for today. Yeah, that's great. I'm excited. So this is uh, one of my favorite things to talk about is uh, human behavior and then the construct of human behavior as it relates to relationship, right? And so whether that's family, intimate relationship, partnership, team, um, it's really how we intersect in the world. So I'm, I would talk about it all day. Great. So I guess uh, let's start with the basics. Uh, what is an Enneagram other than a very hard word for me to say? It, it is a, a hard word. I've gotten in my career the Enneagram what <laughs> more often than not. Is it, I mean, I don't know anything about it, but like just from a Greek, being a Greek person who speaks Greek, does that mean there's like nine types? Yes, exactly. Um, the translation of Enneagram is literally the drawing of nine. Yeah, and so Enneagram means in Greek, Enneagramma, like nine letters. Oh, beautiful. The name is not meant to mean anything other than nine identities, nine worldviews, essentially. And it is a behavioral model to help us put language to why we move in the world, how we move in the world, what that looks like. And it's often formed out of patterns of coping and finding out who I am and how I fit in childhood. And we develop these sort of subconscious ways of being that turn into personality. And so the Enneagram is this beautiful marrying of a psychological and a spiritual sense of self that helps us sort of name that construct that we know as personality. Are you only one type? Like when, you know, how, first of all, how do you discover what you are? And then what are the types and <laughs> more than one? Like, these are all the questions that are just kind of rushing through my head right now while you're speaking. They're great questions. They're great questions. So while there's nine worldviews, right? Nine types. 
there's actually three subtypes within each type. So we're looking at 27 archetypes oh in the Enneagram, right? Exactly. And that's why discovering your type can be kind of complicated because number one, we're looking at conditioned behavior. So if we were all really self-aware, which is hard work, we would be able to name not just what we do, but why we do it. So we walk through a typing process. You can find your type in lots of ways. That just tends to be the quickest. Um, we walk through a typing process that allows me to sort of act as a human algorithm and categorize the what, the behavior to some, some buckets of why and try to put language to, oh, this is what Maria does to move in the world. This is how she feels safe. This is how she feels successful. And can we get a clearer picture of the origin story around behavior? Not so that we can stay there, right? So we do connect with one type, but our work is to resource it and create more room for it and find other pathways so that through consciousness work, through being in presence and practice, right? Um, we think about this like ego development and psychology. With time, we hope to not look like anything and just this sort of muddled um, <laughs> combination of all of these worldviews, because ultimately that's what we were intended as human is to be this sort of messy, complex, and experience in life sort of says, hey, can you act more like this to make the people around you or the expectations in your life more comfortable, right? That's ultimately what personality is, is a mask. As someone who deals with personality typing all day and I use other models, I have found that certain personality typing can be really tough. And I don't know if this applies to Enneagram, so you'll have to tell me, but it can be very tough for, for I think, some people to understand their personality. And I'll give you an example. Like I've always not liked Myers-Briggs. And my biggest, other than the fact that I think it gives people this idea that, oh, if you're extroverted, you have to be with an introvert and vice versa. Like, I think that's just, that's just a fault on its own. But what another thing that I don't like about it is that when there's too many things of something, it's fine that you know your own, but you might not know what other people are to like learn how to optimize your behavior to get the kind of experience that you're looking for. And, and I'll give you an example as well. That's even more basic horoscopes. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a Sagittarius. I don't, I don't know anything else. I, I know my husband's a Libra, but I don't know what that means. I just know what I am. And I think for most people, when they tell me like their Myers-Briggs scores, like maybe someone will say they're, you know, an ENTP. And I'm like, great. What does that mean to you? Like, you know, you know what you are, but if I introduce you to someone's like, a, you know, another type, can you tell me anything about them? Whereas you know, I've interviewed Helen Fisher in the past, and I really like her personality modeling. The thing that I loved about Dr. Helen Fisher's personality typing is that it's it's like, you know, it's divided by four. It's mm -hmm. less. So you can, it's like, you know what you are. And of course there's two subsets below that, but you know what you are and you can know what other people are. So you can like kind of figure mm -hmm. out like how to do things. I'm wondering, you know, with Enneagram, I've seen it a few times, but to me, is it just about, is it just conscientiousness? Is it just about knowing thyself or are you expected to look for compatibility within that? That's a really great question. And oftentimes I think human nature says, I learn a little bit about me. Of course, I want to know about you, right? Because that's a, that's a protective nature in the human experience to go outside and project on other. Therefore, I don't have to sort of hold the work on my own. And so Myers-Briggs, 
um, the disk assessment, the color profile, strength finders, the Enneagram, they're all tools in a toolbox on our pathway to self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And self-awareness is just one part of emotional intelligence, right? And so if we want to understand compatibility, if we want to understand well, you know, in Enneagram terms, we talk about speaking to somebody's listening, we have to know ourselves so well because we have to be able to filter through our own bias, our own habits, our own unknowing in order to even see somebody else's a tiny bit more clearly. So ultimately, I think our work is all getting to know us at this sort of boss-like level. That's what matters. And if I can show up in presence, being able to name and know my stuff, I call it, I I sort of think about people like garbage trucks. (laughs) We sort of putter through life, dropping our trash on the ground. And self-awareness is the ability to look down and go, oh, this is my trash, right? I own this. But when I lack self-awareness, I leave too much or I take too much. And relationship compatibility, whether that's team or familial or intimate, I think comes from first being able to own what's ours. And so I, you know, the Enneagram is the tool I use. I have been trained in Myers-Briggs and the DISC assessment. I think they do a good job of categorizing the what of behavior, not enough telling me the why. And I have a hard time healing or resourcing or softening or giving grace if I don't, if I can't find out why behind it. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it, it totally <laughs> does. I think self-awareness, it helps people give the vocabulary they need to articulate their limits. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. Like I'm a very fond of the Colby test, K-O-L-B-E, or like if you want to learn like our strengths and weaknesses, mm-hmm. especially like in a work environment. And, um, I always have all, any, you know, any new employee to have to do the Colby test, it's a way for the whole team to learn against our own scores. What are their strengths and weaknesses? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I discovered when I did that, I think I'm trying to remember because I confused myself now with my employees results. It's been a long time since I read them. Um, but I remember that like, you know, I need a different day every day and I get energy from having a busy schedule. Mm-hmm. Like that's a strength. And then it's a, it's a limit. I know where my limits are in the sense that, you know, like, uh, emotional thinking is, a, is not something that I particularly enjoy. Like I like to kind of look at problems in a very logic based way. Mm-hmm. And that helped me that was like, that can be a weakness sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. That totally. means sometimes I don't give people the necessary grace that they need to. And so by knowing that it's like, I have to kind of remind myself all the time, like, okay, we don't know. No, you have to give this person a moment to feel what they're feeling, even if it makes no sense. You got it. Problem, you know? So I think, yeah, yeah. I, I, I see exactly what you're saying then with the anagram that, so just to reiterate, I guess what you said before is that by knowing your enneagram, you you gain further self awareness, tightening your emotional possible emotional compatibility with someone else because you're able to articulate your wants, your needs, your limits. Right, and then in that, in me being able to communicate my wants, my needs, and limits, I make more room for somebody else's wants and needs and limits and compatibility. We've seen through you know tons and tons of research. I'm I'm. I'm a self-proclaimed nerd <laughs> and I really value good science. You know, we know that it's not the absence of conflict or that healthy relationships are this, you know, per- perfection, right? It is how quickly folks can recover from an incident. That's what sort of denotes health. 
And awareness, self-awareness allows us to make more room for each other's experiences. So we have more capacity to recover from right. that. And so, you know, a lot of people will ask me, are there personality types in the Enneagram that are more um, compatible than others? And for me, it really comes down to how aware is that person and how much room do they have for somebody else's truth so that you can have room. You know, when we're pinched and held and stressed and we're sort of desperately clinging to our own security responses, there isn't room for anyone else's truth. Do you, if you are one type, do, can you change to a different type throughout life? Or are you a type suddenly as an adult and that's the type you are for the rest of your life? We have sort of a starting point. I think about it like, you know, a starting line or like a map right? Um, we have a starting point that is sort of bred out of childhood development. And then our work as healthy adults is to expand that. So while our starting never changes, we almost bring more resources to the table. And so we start to look less like this singular identity and more like lots of resources. Okay. And how do you discover what someone's type is? Well, um, lots of Lots of people can, you know, sort of self-identify by reading a book or listening to a podcast. That takes a lot of self-reflection and time. Um, or you can sort of speed it up by going to a training with a professional. I offer these typing interviews. They take like an hour and we sort of move through a series of questions to hone in on those behavioral um, processes and patterns. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a way to sort of hit fast forward and get to some results that might feel true to you. So there's lots of ways you can do it. I personally love the typing process because I'm a fast moving person and I like getting to results quickly. I love that. And I think I'd, I'd like one. Would you want to move through it? Why not? All right. Well, let me give you my sort of spiel um, as we move through the typing process, because I sort of think about myself like a human algorithm. I've been doing typing for almost 12 years. I've lost count after I've done over a thousand, but I've quit counting. <laughs> um, and so my work is to hold space for your truth, not to be the sort of catalyst of telling you who you are. You know your type, you know your patterns, you know your why behind way better than I do. I'm just going to categorize it. And so I'm going to ask you a series of questions. There will be no right or wrong way to answer them. Um, and to just hold that I don't know might be the, the clearest possible answer that you can provide me. And so, and we'll sort of push in together as we move through them on what feels true for you today as this healthy, evolved adult woman and what might have been true for you, say, 10, 15 years ago. And we're going to hold the both of that as we move through it. We'll get to the end of the typing process and I'll present something for you to try on. I think about it like a dressing room. I'm going to hand you a shirt. Um, you put it on, you, you wear it, you see if it's a good fit. If it isn't, take it off. Um, and we'll continue the conversation until we get to something that feels like the language, language matches your truth. Um, and that's, something that feels very important to me is that you feel empowered through this process to um, say, nope, that doesn't work. That doesn't feel like it's my story. And we try again. So, and then I'll send you follow-up resources afterwards for you to sort of 
keep unpacking and, and trying on the language to see if it feels like it's something you can use as a springboard for future growth. Right. Just really quick, when you are asking the questions, do I respond in how I feel today or how I felt 10 years ago? I would say both, right? I, I think you'll know as we move through the questions, if this is a sort of held truth for you historically, like, yep, this is always true for me. This is just how I move or, well, I can feel my evolution in this one. Um, it'll be really apparent as we move through it and I'll hold it with you and have learned to be unbiased enough to sort of push into it. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do then. Um, since you're gonna be asking me questions, we're gonna pause the recording Perfect. And then we're going to come back. And I think when we come back, maybe you go over all of what the nine types are, and then you can tell me what my type is. Sounds great. Sounds good. Okay. We'll be right back. <laughs> okay. We're back. We're almost towards the end. I've been asked a ton of questions for the last 45 minutes. Aaron, go, go ahead. All right. Well, you've done a really great job. Um, we pushed into questions on each of the nine worldviews and we we're tracking uh, trends in those behaviors. Does Maria exhibit an extensive connection to this type or not? If not, we move out of those questions and we move on to the next. And the goal is to find the biggest sort of connection to your worldview, which which hopefully we've done. And we'll we'll kind of share that in a minute. But before we do, before we sort of push into the dominant type, I want to talk about these three instincts um, that help us identify a more nuanced pattern of behavior within the Enneagram. And I wanna unpack the three types, how they align to levels of cognition in childhood, what they look like in healthy adults. And Maria, have you sort of help me identify what feels like a truth for you uh, in these instincts, which one feels more like a common source of coping. And then we can take that and attach it to this dominant worldview to understand your unique view in the Enneagram. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. So these three instincts in Enneagram teaching are often called self-preservation, social, and relational. Sometimes the relational is called sexual or one-to-one. -one. I'm going to use the word relational now. Um, so the self-preservation instinct aligns to levels of cognition for kiddos under the age of two. And so knowing that you have kiddos, I do myself, I have a four and a six-year-old, we can sort of use them as these walking examples of what this looks like in the world, right? So kiddos under the age of two, and this includes the, the last three months in utero, um, they only understand the world through getting the basic elements of survival met, right? Do I have a roof over my head? Is there food in my belly? Is my diaper dry? Is my body warm? Am I getting enough sleep? And am I getting nurturing, right? And so when something happens to me under the age of two, holding the self-preservation um, level of cognition, when something happens to me and that something is a real trauma or a perceived trauma that does not matter to a kid's brain, when something happens to me, I develop coping strategies to get my basic needs met, right? So this is where kiddos learn to cry to get fed or throw something to get picked up or coo to get nurturing. The harder I have to work, the more intense the real or perceived trauma is, the more ground this becomes in my cognition, the more important this is to me, right? 
And so perceived trauma could be things like birth of a sibling, change of a caretaker, moving. Real trauma could be things like abuse, neglect, divorce, loss. My brain can't tell the difference. My brain just knows that I need more tools. I need more resources to get my needs met. The harder I have to work, the more important it is. So adults who have had a really profound experience getting their needs met really value the sort of container of life. When I'm pinched, I might want to control time. I might want a really good plan or a schedule. I might want a certain amount of money in the bank or a really rigid routine. I might want my house to be really orderly and put together and, and picked up. Um, I may uh, want to sort of retreat into myself and be alone. All of these things are indicators in our adult world that resourcing myself is sort of my dominant pull, my dominant instinct. Does that feel clear? Mm -hmm. Okay. So then as we, as we grow and evolve and develop, um, usually between the ages of two and four, it's like kiddos lift their head up and they recognize, oh, it's more than me and caretaker, right? There's more people in this world. And we understand our safety and security through the element of community. So I think about kiddos at this age, like a herd of elephants. And so we think about this, like the herd mentality. Elephants, the baby elephants are on the inside of the herd. They don't necessarily know that their safety is indi indicative of anything other than the whole herd, right? This whole unit keeps me safe. And so I sort of feel good on the inside of it. But when something happens to me in this range of cognition, real or perceived, I can feel kicked out of the herd and I learn coping skills to get back in, right? So this might look like kids who people please, who self forget, who fawn, who manipulate, who, um, who lie, who gossip, who are critical, right? The harder I have to work, to feel like I belong, to feel safe and secure on the inside of the herd, the more important this social belonging means to me, right? So this can translate to adults who value recognition, being seen, being appreciated, being valued, being loved, um, and needing that across a whole construct, right? It's not just satisfactory enough to have partner do it or best friend do it. It's partner and best friend and siblings and coworkers. I need to belong across the construct, right? Across the whole herd. Does that feel clear? Yes. Okay. So then typically between the ages of four and seven, uh, kiddos learn the relational instinct. And this is where they can start to narrow down the herd and recognize that somebody, one elephant, can make me feel more safe or more unsafe more quickly. This is where we learn preference, right? We can sort of narrow our energy and give intensely to problem solve. So I have a six-year-old neurodivergent child. And when she is dysregulated, she often prefers mom. She wants mom, not because she likes me more than dad. I just have more practice at regulating her and getting her to a point where she feels safe. When she's a regulated child, she picks dad because he's way more fun than me. He breaks all the rules. He's silly. He does all this. So she knows how to pick. She knows how to pick preference based on what makes her feel safer, secure more quickly, right? 
So these are adults who understand how to sort of narrow down life, be in, you know, be in a, a smaller group, a smaller um, pack, so to speak, and can really give their energy really intensely to something being in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. So the construct of personality is usually formed for us between the ages of seven and 11. It's, it's, it's really solid. And then we ingrain these behaviors and these value systems and these beliefs through our adolescence and our 20s. We, we sort of grind them into our subconscious, into our, our patterns of behaviors that we don't have to name and know. And then typically when we experience partnership, children, success, life, work, whatever, we start to say, oh, I need more tools in my tool belt. These old ways of being, these old patterns don't necessarily serve me. So I start to evolve and expand. So while I might start with a primary instinct in childhood, maybe into teens and 20s, these instincts do shift throughout life as I get more resource, right? That's the whole sort of work in point. But we can often name one at a family of origin or old story that say, yeah, when I get pinched, when I'm really stressed, when I'm really under-resourced or beyond my capacity or really tired, you'll see this particular thing come out in me. Mine is a social dominant instinct. When I'm feeling especially tender, I really need to feel like I belong. That'll help settle my nervous system. And my work as a 40 year old woman is to learn to belong to myself, right? To bring that belonging internally. But that is my sort of old story. So do you feel like Maria, after hearing about these, you could identify one that sort of speaks the most truth for you historically as a primary instinct? No, <laughs> I maybe, I think maybe if I were to pick, obviously it would be the one like between the ages of like seven and 11, I think you said only because I remember them. Yeah, sure. And I remember how stressful school was because I felt like in second grade, when I was seven, I was with a really supportive teacher who like, just kind of like, let me be me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was very much like independent worker and she just really, you know, she enjoyed that, whatever. And then my third grade teacher, she would punish me in front of the whole class for, I don't, I don't, I never understood why. I just knew that she, I would get picked on a lot by her, me and this other mm -hmm. boy, we would get picked on a lot by her. And that felt really frustrating. And then in fourth mm -hmm. grade, I was back with a teacher who was like super supportive just really great all around, very thorough, like just really, mm -hmm. she was good. It was funny, the boy that and I would get picked on a lot. We were again in the same class in fourth grade and we really excelled in that class. Like it was great. And then in fifth grade, I was with a teacher who decided to go back to teaching after I guess running like the gifted program or whatever at some other school district. And while I was not put in the gifted program, she felt like I was not gifted enough and that's fine. I don't really give a shit. I think parents care more than the kids do. But um, I remember she would tell my mom that I was a depressed, I was depressed. I was a depressed 10 year old. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm depressed. Like, I didn't, I didn't think I was sad. I didn't, I just thought that, you know, you kept telling me I'm not gifted. And then I'm like, it's fine. Okay. I understand. Like, can we just keep move on? And she never wanted to move on. And I felt like she had a lot of project, like as an adult, now I look back and I'm like, she just had a lot of projection. And I think that affected my mother more than it affected me. Sure but I could sure. see that it was affecting my mother. And 
um, anyway, so that means that in those years, I was like one year really great where I couldn't wait to go to school. Another year where I was like, oh, school's going to suck. And the next year again, right. you know, and then, so it was like these four years was like up and down, up and down. And I think, yeah, I think that was, I think that was, you know, just, uh, it, you know, it is what it is, I suppose. Um, the other stuff, I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we, that's, that's all of our own struggles, right? Like I can't remember what life was like under two or at four, right? I don't have that cognition. The best window I have is how I move in the world today and how I move in the world today when I feel stressed or pinched or not at my, not at my best. Right. So I'll give you an example of what sort of this movement might look like in, you know, sort of a traditional setting and see if any of those speak to you like, oh yeah, I can see myself doing those kinds of things. So um, pre-COVID, right, when we used to do corporate retreats and all day events, um, I would hold these three instincts as I watched people move around the room that would help me determine how I would facilitate to each of these individuals. So as you sort of start the day, somebody who walks in, who holds this sort of self-preservation instinct as a stress response might immediately tell me, I have to be done by five. I have to go get my kids mm -hmm. or I don't have enough handouts or there doesn't look like there's enough place to sit or we're running out of food or there's not enough plates or it feels cold in here, right? Folks who are really concerned with time, space, the environment, and the resources in the room, right? So I can feel the sort of the nervous or, or big energy around the things. The social folks will walk in and often feel like they need to belong. So they might be talking to a lot of people, kind of like a wedding reception, you know, getting to know folks. And um, they might offer to help me with something so that they can feel like they belong with me, right? Can I help you hand out papers or what can I do or how can I help set up, right? You can sort of see them move um, through the herd that way. Relational folks will sort of walk in in their own sort of heat and power, maybe find the most interesting person in the room, their closest um, group and friends, sit down, be really, really content to be in that space. That's yeah, That's okay. <laughs> and, and our work, right, is to recognize this as a value system, regardless of Enneagram type. This is how folks move. This is how folks problem solve. When we experience conflict, it's usually because we're going in to solve the problem um, with our own value system, right? I want to solve it maybe as a relational type with intensity, with logic, with some information. Let's get into the meat of it. And let's make it small and solvable where a social instinct might solve the problem wanting to make everybody happy and to belong, where the self-preservation instinct might either pull away to process or worry about, do we have enough money for this? <laughs> or what are the rules, right? So to know that the relational instinct is your dominant helps us tie that to an Enneagram type. We take the instinct, we take the Enneagram type, they sort of marry and we create this very nuanced set of behaviors one that I'd like you to consider is the relational, or some Enneagram teachers call it sexual or one-to-one. -one. It all means the same thing. The relational dominant eight. That would be the type that I would have you sort of try on if we were in a dressing room and I'm handing you a sweater. And essentially what that means is that Maria knows how to intensely narrow life to problem solve, get to what's most important right in front of me right now, 
And I do so through the worldview of this eight archetype that says, I value and honor the fact that I am a strong, competent, capable human being who can and is able to and does take care of others, right? And sort of my natural confidence, my natural competence creates this sort of followership where people sort of appoint me leader <laughs> when I maybe don't ask for it or don't even want it because I just mm -hmm. come off as already source so stable and so competent. And eight identities get labeled the defender, the protector, all of these sort of adjectives to describe this ability to stand in strength more easily than some other archetypes can. But the strength comes from protecting my own innocence. It comes from wanting to control the vulnerable parts of me and not let people have access to them so that they can't hurt the tenderest parts of me without my sort of being in control and power of it. So eights often like to be their own boss, like to be the leader, like to be in charge so that I can be in control of the situation and sort of protect and hone and honor my own innocence. The part of that means that the eights are very justice oriented, very protective, value what's ethical. Now I don't say what's right, right? Because right is a subjective term. Mm -hmm. it, it is what's in somebody's value system. Um, ethical is what is just, right? What is the, the right way to be sort of moral and humane. And I heard a lot of that in your interview answers, um, that taking people's money isn't always your end game. It's taking people's money under a right way of honoring, can I be of service to them? Can I give right. them what they're after and what they need, right? That is, diff that is just um, versus being righteous, if that feels clear to you. So- Yes, it does. I feel like you're- describing me very well in this uh in number eight is that what you said number eight yeah 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 this uh this seems pretty accurate to me <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful system because what what it does for everybody else in life with maria is to recognize the fact that you get big the fact that you have this sort of strength and i and i mean you can't people can't see me but like i feel my spine getting taller and my shoulders coming back when i think about the strength in maria and it's because you've learned to sort of walk tall. But what we have to remember is there's a giant amount of tenderness in there. The biggest, most compassionate heart, right? Eights tend to be very big empaths who get really sort of overwhelmed at big suffering in the world, um, at things I can't control, people I can't protect, right? And I can feel their pain at really, really intense levels. And I'm working hard to protect from the pain. And so I heard some of that from you about the achiness around suffering around the world, what's happening in Miami right now and, and sort of watching people suffer, um, that there is a, a pull in you for that. And so while folks might be intimidated when they don't know you, right? Eight women often get called bitchy a lot, but it's like, you don't really know the big, loyal, loving heart underneath it until you get to see, you get to meet and get to know. Does that feel true yeah. to you? It is true. And it's something that I mentioned during our interview, like, I think you would ask me like, you know, what does the word intimidate, you know, intimidating mean to you? And I said, I, I hear it from people that they feel intimidated all the time. And I've heard even my colleagues tell other colleagues that I'm helping, oh, she's a bitch. 
And then those colleagues who I'm helping, they'll, they'll defend me and say, you know, she's actually really helpful. What are you talking about? Whatever. <laughs> and I think, and what I, what I said to you, Aaron, is like, I think, I think that when people spend one-on-one -on -one time with me, that they'll see that I'm actually not, I don't, I don't believe that I'm a bitch. I'm actually a really nice, compassionate person. And, um, and I'm also very sensitive. I'm incredibly sensitive um, with one-on-one -on -one and like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the part of it that we all get to hold now, right? And so emotional intelligence means that I get to know me and I get to know my pinches and maybe why people make me feel intimidated. And then social intelligence is where I apply my knowing to you. And I'm like, oh, when Maria's no nonsense, when she is direct, when she is clear, she is searching for truth and security as a way to feel good in the world, not because maybe there's something wrong with me, because I have to hold that if there is, Maria will tell me she's a truth yeah. seeker, right? I will definitely, so if something is wrong, I, I'm the person who's never going to hide it. Like, I will tell you, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to know. Here's how to fix it. Yeah. So I shouldn't fill in the gaps of my own tenderness, my social instinct that needs to belong. I shouldn't mm -hmm. fill in the gaps and trust that Maria will tell me what she really needs and what she really wants, right? And it creates more space for all this conflict resolution. So it's a really beautiful wow. way to apply it to self, but then make so much room when I can start to name and know for other. Well, Erin, this was like amazing. I feel like everyone, oh God, I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait for you to email and be like, oh my God, I'm booked until the next year. I, I want to <laughs> just give a really quick review of what it felt like to be interviewed by Aaron. So Aaron is an incredible listener. She asked really amazing questions, very questions that I've never been asked before ever. I, in fact, one word she asked, I had to Google it just to like remind myself what the definition is to understand my relationship with that, with that word you know, she, it felt good. It felt good to talk to you. It felt good to answer these questions. And it also felt validating as you were just speaking, telling me what you found in your findings. Like, yes, this, this is accurate. I can't believe that there is a type in the personality typing that talks about me. Um, that's, that's incredible. And I wonder if I do wonder now if I met another eight, if we recognize each other or if we hate each other, because, you know, recognition can mean more empathy, but sometimes I think women like me are like, wait, are you, are you like me? Or are you like, where's the empathy? Because it's like the beginning is very rough. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought I really enjoyed this experience. And if you are interested in learning what your type is, check out the link in my episode notes where you can dive into learning what your Enneagram is with Erin Bowdy. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I like to think about knowing our type is like buying a gym membership. It's like a really good first step to being seen, to being known, to being putting language to what we need in the world, but it does nothing if I don't use it, right? So we take the Enneagram and we apply it to the work we're already doing, to our coaching, to our therapy, to our business work that we might do with Maria, right? It doesn't matter where I take it. It goes with me everywhere, but I put it to work and I exercise it. And I learn as a way to sort of practice how I, as a unique individual in the world, need to recover and repair so I can make more room for me and to be in relationship with other people. So 
Um, my encouragement is to get to know your type and then take it wherever you're doing your work and keep using it. I'm going to also urge my employees to all meet with you in the few, coming weeks as well, because I want to learn what their type is and I want to see how I can accommodate them more. But maybe that's also just speaking to my own personality that I like want to be accommodating. Erin Bowdy, it was amazing having you. I know you pretty soon we'll be calling you Dr. Bowdy because you're currently a PhD candidate, which is so exciting. I'm so excited for your next endeavor. Um, but I just, again, I want to thank you for coming to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you for having me, Maria. It was lovely. And Erin, is there a place that people can um, follow you on social media? Yep. Um, I'm on Instagram on living the Enneagram. Um, and it's a platform where I love to sort of practice consciousness. So whether or not you know your Enneagram type, you can come and have space to sort of reflect and be in the exercising of making more room. Erin, I will include your Instagram handle in the episode notes as well. So if you're interested in following Erin, check out the episode notes. As I've mentioned before, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and how I can help you, visit agapimatch.com. The link is in the episode notes. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matchmaker Maria for more dating and relationship content. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.